I mean, what I would do if I saw a patient on the ward or in ED, the, when I get concerned is patient looks unwell, they're tachypneic. Um, uh, sometimes if they require oxygen, low urine output um, mm-hmm. worries me. Confusion or drowsiness worries me a lot. So they're probably the big ones. That's classic end organ dysfunction. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, This week I have a couple of... uh, guests are coming to talk to us. Uh, we're going to do a, a podcast together on a really interesting topic. Uh, the topic is um, maternal sepsis or sepsis in pregnancy, I guess would be the best phrase. Mm-hmm. I've got um, Sneha, one of the um, consultant colleagues here, I think when we, we've done previous podcasts. Yeah, when, I've when done a couple trainee. before with you. Yep. But now you now she's a big boss. <laughs> she's qualified. <laughs> Nothing's changed now. <laughs> and we've got uh, an intensive care trainee, uh, Jessica Summer, who's also come along to um, help us with all the clever stuff. Um, and I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, Sneha, do you want to um, fill us in on what sort of inspired you to suggest this topic and how, how you think we should talk about it? Yeah, so I thought we'd um, uh, yeah, have a chat about maternal sepsis. Um, it's something that we haven't covered before in one of um, your podcasts and I think it's uh, quite relevant to obstetric anesthesia. It's one of the leading causes of maternal morbidity and mortality in the world. Um I think just behind obstetric hemorrhage and hypertensive disorders. I think it's yep. number three or four or something like that. So, um, and I, I recently had quite a um, complex and, and severe case of, of a septic shock that ended up going to ICU and actually being looked after by Jess um, here yep. as well. So that was sort of the case that precipitated this discussion about yeah. um, okay. maternal sepsis. And it's yeah, very interesting and complex topic, I think, yeah. Okay, so I think we were going to do, um, we're just going to sort of present a made-up sort of hypothetical patient just as a sort of uh, basis of to um, structure our conversation, and then we're going to go through um, a few sort of set points, but we're just going to see where the conversation goes. Hopefully we make sense and uh, <laughs> and it's <laughs> easy to listen to for yeah. those of you out there. Do you want to present the hypothetical sort of case? Yeah, so the the case we've just come up with, just to give us a bit of context, is you get called in to see a Nullip woman who is 32 weeks pregnant. She has a BMI of 45 and has a GDM on insulin. She's presented to Maternal Fetal Assessment Unit uh, with a two-day history of um, uh, prolonged rupture of membranes, and she has a temp of 39.5, a heart rate of 120, a blood pressure of 95 on 50, and a respirate of 24. She has SATs of 95 on room air. She's not yet, she's not yet Celestone current. So that's the sort of scenario we've, we thought we'll just base it off. Um, and I think the first thing we'll, we'll talk about is the definitions of sepsis and the semantics behind how those definitions have evolved over the last sort of 10, 20 years. Yep. Um, Jess, would you like to go through some of the definitions of uh, sepsis? <laughs> yeah, yeah, why not? Um, <laughs> yes, they have changed a bit over the last 20 years. Uh, sort of the concepts of SERS and severe sepsis are out and since the 2016 reiteration of the surviving sepsis guideline and sepsis 3, um, the two big terms now are sepsis and septic shock and mm-hmm. nothing else in between. So, I mean, the term SERS exists still. We still use it all the time in ICU, but usually 
we use that in a context that is outside of sepsis, Mm -hmm. um, that yes, a septic patient can be SERSI, but um, it's more for our like pancreatitis and stuff in in patients that have not got infection, but they have an inflammatory response secondary to their um, pathology. Um, So it's sepsis and septic shock are the big ones now. So sepsis, dysregulated host response to infection, pretty simple. Um, That can be with or without organ dysfunction. And most of the time, the organ dysfunction comes with septic shock, which is a dysregulated host response to infection, but with a blood pressure that is a map of less than 65 Mm -hmm. after initial resuscitation or requiring vasopressors to maintain a map of 65 or greater Mm -hmm. or a lactate um, greater than two. Yeah. Okay. So sepsis. I like those new definitions. Yeah, they're they're a bit more clean. Yeah. Yeah. So there's sepsis and septic shock, as Jess said, and specifically in the maternal population, the WHO uh, World Health Organization came up with a definition, I think soon after Mm. those guidelines came out, um, defining what maternal sepsis is. And I have here that it's a life-threatening condition defined as organ dysfunction resulting from infection that arises either during pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum or post-abortion. And that postpartum period is defined as a 42-day or six-week period after yeah. childbirth. And so it's very similar to the yeah. sepsis definition, but just pertinent to our yeah. um, obstetric yeah. population. Yeah. So those are the definitions. Um, and they're very useful for anyone sitting part one or part two exams, mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> Something you need to know off the top of your head. Um, so next thing we'll talk about is... Um, how to recognise the signs and symptoms of sepsis. And that um, is often uh, quite relevant in terms of um, one of the the main um, worries with maternal sepsis is that the normal physiological ad- adaptations of pregnancy often mask yeah. the uh, signs and symptoms of sepsis, leading to delayed uh, recognition and therefore treatment and therefore poorer yeah. outcomes. So... Um, Maybe we'll just do a quick recap on some of the part one um, physiological changes of um, pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I can go through that very briefly. Um, okay. Um, some cardiovascular and respiratory adaptations are mm-hmm. probably the main ones that we need to focus on. Um, so pregnancy is associated with increased plasma volume, can increase by up to 50%. Uh, there's increased preload, which results in increase in stroke volume as well as increased um, heart rate. So it's not uncommon for pregnant women to have normal heart rates of up to 120. Um, That results in an increased cardiac output. Um, And there's also uh, um, progesterone-induced peripheral vasodilatation, which results in a decreased systemic vascular resistance. That, along with the placenta, also being a low-resistance circuit, Uh, all actually decreases systolic blood pressure, especially in the second trimester. Um, And that all leads to sort of this hyperdynamic circulation. Um, uh, And basically, uh, my understanding is what that means is that they they compensate very well until they don't, and then they fall off a bit of a cliff. And it's similar to a paediatric. Yeah, Yeah. and also the problems of recognition as well. So, Mm. In terms of... um, what it, what it, and the scoring systems, Jess might be able to comment mm. on this. Certainly, in general, adults uh, population, not non-pregnant population, the scoring systems rely heavily on um, heart rate and blood pressure and respiratory rate. Respiratory rate, SATs and of course, as well, yeah. yeah. Yep. And of course, um, it, 
What are, what are they? What's, what's the most common scoring system people use for early warning? Oh, there's a Muse system. Um, I've forgotten the name of some of the others, but some rely yeah. on like, oh, there's the ads chart as well where you get points for the degree of abnormality of each of those parameters and then you get a certain threshold score, which off the top of my head is like six or seven or eight or something like that. We don't use that in the hospital I'm currently at. Um, and the others is just, a, um, you know, like the, kind of like a traffic light system of different shades of yellow or um, yellow, red and purple as to the severity and whether you just need a nurse review, uh, medical review or it's a, for a met call. Mm. And those cutoffs are based for um, the adult population. Obviously, there's paediatric charts and there's obstetric charts. Mm-hmm. And we had a quick look through the ones that we have in, uh, mm. <clears throat> in use in our hospitals here. Yeah, obviously, we have non-pregnant women here and we have pregnant obstetric patients too and what were the main yeah and the idea of the early warning chart is really to get someone to come and look at someone it doesn't necessarily tell you they've got sepsis or not because it can it can be normal as Mm. i was saying with the normal Mm -hmm. changes or it could be bleeding or 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 just the maternal efforts of labor yeah pain (laughs) or it could be lots of other things so just just because you get someone to come review them you still haven't figured out what's going on but yeah what what are the main differences on the charts that we use at, uh, here in WA? So the main difference is I was sort of doing a bit of a comparison. We've got three different charts um, here for our non-obstetric, our antenatal and our postnatal population. Yep. But the key differences are uh, when it comes to systolic blood pressure. Yep. So normally in the non-obstetric population, we sort of get worried with a blood pressure below 100 systolic. Yep. Um, and a blood pressure below 90 systolic, I believe, is what triggers a MET call. Yep. However, in the obstetric population, um, we are only really worried. Uh, we only really call a met call when the blood pressure is below eighty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, we have a lower tolerance, a lower threshold for yep. high, th- yeah, high, yeah, threshold. high threshold and lower lower blood pressure. Mm. Um, we tolerate a lower blood pressure in the obstetric population. Um, and also in terms of uh, the temperature was the other main thing is that we do increase our surveillance in. Uh, when there's a temperature of above 37.5, whereas in the adult population, it's generally on a temperature above 38. So we have a lower threshold for um, sort of screening for this sort of sepsis, which is good. Those are two main things. Uh, Oh, sorry, the third one was um, the uh, heart rate. So in a normal non-obstetric population, we sort of increase Mm -hmm. our surveillance to the heart rate of above 100. But in the obstetric population, uh, we only really get concerned with a heart rate of... um, sort of above 110 120 yeah, yeah. that yeah. makes sense yeah so you can still we still do come across women who are septic and they've got a heart rate of 110 mm. so, but there's so many women with heart rate of 110 for other reasons that yeah so it makes it tricky i think it? it's interesting that they've not adjusted the respiratory rate as a difference because yeah. that is one of the adaptations mm. of maternal physiology yes and i think that's because respiratory rate is such an important um clinical parameter to detect early like Yep. bad physiology going on. Mm. Um, it's sort of one of the most um, sensitive sensitive parameters to detect badness mm. and shock. I, this is completely sort of my gut feeling. Is that I very rarely get a phone call or hear of people calling a met call or, or phoning someone and saying, I'm worried because the respiratory rate such and such. It seems to be less on people's radar. Mm. But yeah, what about in your hospital, Jess? Um, no, we often get met calls for tachypnea okay, or work of breathing, um, but then it's kind of obvious, you know, like yeah. the respirate's probably 30 and above, and it yep. is obvious if someone is working hard and they they are tachypneic, and then someone actually carefully counts the, the respirate. Um, so, no, we, we do 
but anything probably less than 25 won't really get picked up, yeah. I suspect. Mm. But I think that's probably a good point. So certainly, like, women, obstetric patients who aren't in labour and aren't in pain, mm. if they're tachypneic, should, we should Concerning. Be, we should yeah, be concerned and we should, like, yeah. um, escalate rapidly. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's and I think these point. charts are good for the flip side as well is that we can't put things down to maternal physiology when they are abnormal um, and say, oh, you know, a heart rate of 130, is that normal? You know, if you've got the chart, you know, no, it is abnormal. The mm. obstetric yeah. chart says it's abnormal. Mm. I'm now I'm concerned because mm. the constellation of factors on here now are such that um, this is no longer normal maternal physiology. Mm. What I really like about these charts too is that they show you um, how things are changing over time too. So that's often yes, not trends, really talked yeah. about, but mm-hmm. yeah. but seeing what it was and yeah, it's normally not this, and now suddenly it is this. That's mm. important too, isn't it? The trend, yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, I just thought quickly, just we we're talking about increased rest rate. So um, once again, a sort of part one question, but um, it's I think the progesterone in stimulates the respiratory centre yeah. to increase tidal volume and rest rate mm. um, and therefore increase minute ventilation. And that's secondary as well to an increased metabolic demand mm-hmm. of the of the fetus. So, um, yeah, so and, and that also results in this compensated metabolic alkalosis, which you see on blood gases, yeah. which that's means right. that. Yeah, they have a greater buffer before they get quite acidotic on a blood gas yeah, as well, yeah. right? So, so normal if they have acidotic, it's it's quite worrying. Then the PaCO two is normally thirty, isn't it? Instead of 30, 32 or something yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I guess um, the reason mm. respirate can be so sensitive is uh, if someone is acidemic. That's one of the earliest signs. Is that if you're getting acidemic from lactate or mm. whatever else. Um, they're trying to blow off their CO2, and so that's why respirate can be quite sensitive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? No. What's that? No. We'll move on to maybe... Uh, Jess briefly mentioned one of the scoring systems, which was uh, the MUSE uh, Maternal Early Obstetric Warning Scoring System. Yep. So that's one of the ones I think the UK uses quite a bit. Another one that I've heard of is the Sepsis um, in Obstetric Score, SOS Score. Mm specific for yeah obstet- uh, maternal sepsis and that's i think by our u.s compatriots who have come up yep. with that score so that's something you can look up online as well mm-hmm. as another option that's been validated in um, obstetric populations <coughs> no in my crash reading just before this, we came together <laughs> to do the podcast <laughs> i did read that they said you know that they were um the paper that i read that you gave us yeah. said that there's been no sort of prospective um, validation that it improves outcomes. Mm. But I think everyone agrees they're a good idea. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, what are some of the causes of sepsis? What could be some of the causes of, of, of um, sepsis in this uh, patient that we discussed earlier? 32-weeker, has a temperature, premature rupture of membranes. How would you categorise it, Jess? Oh, yeah. part, part two stuff yeah. now. <laughs> now we're going yeah, on yeah, part yeah. two stuff. <laughs> Classify or die. Yeah. Um, so probably two main classification systems in my mind, not being obstetric trained, but um, probably um, like sort of antenatal, intrapartum and postpartum would be one because they probably yep. are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one, which probably suits my thinking a little bit more, would be obstetric-related causes, so chorea, amnionitis, endometritis, mastitis, those sorts of things, um, things that are not directly related to pregnancy but are at increased risk, influenza, 
um, pyelonephritis, UTIs, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Completely incidental stuff, appendicitis, for example. Um, and then your hospital-acquired infections for your otherwise unwell yeah. patients, like, yeah, um, hospital-acquired pneumonias and catheter-related um, urinary tract infections mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, I just want to take a quick step backwards as mm. well. So um, maybe we haven't talked about this. So sometimes you just get called to see someone who's triggered triggered on these early warning systems mm. to review them because they're unwell and mm. you can tell they're sick and they're unwell, but you don't know that it's sepsis just mm. yet because it could be concealed hemorrhage, pulmonary embolism, mm. um, other things. Mm. That are not sepsis, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They could have ruptured the uterus. They could be... Um, you know, flicked off a PE because obviously it's a prothrombotic uh, state being pregnant and, and various other things too. So that, that's tricky. So yeah. um, any, I guess, uh, just putting a plug in there to um, make sure you don't sort of decide on something mm. uh, or decide on a diagnosis before you've bef- uh, bef- before you've actually proven it. Mm. And I guess from that, we probably should talk about sepsis pathways and and guidelines and and things that do work in hospitals um, and are usually more of a pre-ICU kind of thing and I think they have a very important role because it um, it triggers and prompts early recognition, diagnosis, workup, early treatment, management, resus, all of that mm. um, can be done by people who don't routinely look after septic patients day in, day out. So um, that's like... From those papers you've sent us, mm. it's, they base most of theirs off the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Um, but this hospital has um, actually yeah. a really great sepsis pathway. It's a we had read through. We had a I think we introduced it in two thousand nineteen, um, uh, and yeah, it's quite a comprehensive maternal sepsis pathway that we have here at um, our institution. Um, very detailed. It you can't really yeah. Um, it, it just reminds you not to forget things which you might forget, you know, yep. um, and tells you how to escalate appropriately. So that's really good. And I'm sure every, in, like, institution will have their own sort of local pathway to follow. Um, yeah, any other sort of um, pathways or...? Uh, no, I think that one of these ones, I think that the importance is that it makes you recognise that this is potentially an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. Because if, if the patient is truly septic or already shocked from their septic process, um, getting antibiotics in the first hour we know improves morbidity and mm-hmm. mortality and every hour that, that is delayed will increase your mortality. Mm-hmm. So it is it should be recognised early and same with initiating fluid resuscitation. Um, and, and also doing things like getting a blood cast and obtaining a lactate can be really helpful. Yep. Not even just to go, okay, I think this patient has septic shock or shock from any cause, like it makes the situation more serious. But it also gives you a starting point. So if the lactate's five when you first meet the pa- patient in the emergency centre or whatever, then if after 30 mils per kilo of fluid recess, you then, it comes down to two, you know you, your treatment is There's working. A trend, yeah. So you, you can sort of, it's not perfect, but it can help you guide your recess yeah. a little bit. I, I'm going to admit that I haven't closely read through this um, guideline uh, just uh, recently, um, but I presume it probably says in here somewhere. But um, the other thing is, like, once you recognise that someone's sick, um, has it got anything in there about making sure you get all the right people uh, involved early? Like Escalating, so yeah. So experienced people, but also just yeah. all the different 
specialties that might yep. need to be so like you know ID, microbiology yep. microbiology make sure you're given the right antibiotics mm. and then someone who can do um, a good resuscitation you know so yep. intensive care doctors or anesthetists or yep. someone with some critical care skills mm-hmm. and obviously the obstetricians are key because obviously a lot of the time the infections are related to yeah, you've got to think about source controllers yeah, um, yep. as soon as possible in this population. Yeah. yeah. So they talk about like this um, golden hour of sepsis. Mm. Um, so that basically involves, um, like you said, early um, getting IV access, sending off bloods, including blood cultures, a lactate, mm-hmm. gas, um, initiating early empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics yeah. um, and initiating fluid resuscitation. Would those be the yeah? Or if you're not if you're not winning after your first liter of fluid, I'd probably and you maps like fifty. I probably would start vasopressors at that point because mm-hmm. even you know by the second liter maybe you can come off them. But um, I think it probably is pretty important to defend the map, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Particularly and if there's still a fetus on board. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And also in the article I was reading, and I'm just my general observation too, is that pregnant women are at the top of the Starling curve generally yep. with um, regards to um, their volume status. So mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to overload them. Mm-hmm. And um, even the 30 mils per kilo can be too much for some. Yep. Mm. Uh, so, you, yeah, I agree yep. with you. You want to be careful about flooding someone with lots of fluid. Mm. Yeah. And 30 mils per kilo is is two litres for most people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, three litres is only for 100 kilos, which, mm. you know, particularly if you think yeah. of ideal body weight, yep. um, is, is not that, that many people, especially yep. women. Um, so I think if if you're heading beyond two litres, you really need to think, is this going to work or do we need another plan now, which is vasopressors and yep. escalating care. Yeah. 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 So once, so if you give a litre of fluid, basically, so sort of put it in practical terms, if you give a litre of fluid and they're still hypotensive, yep. you need someone who can put in an arterial line and start yep. some vasopressor. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And Jess, what are your sort of vasopressors of choice? I mean, we normally start metaraminol or phenylephrine, preferably. Um, yeah. Peripheral NORAD is another one that people start. Yeah, um, yeah so yeah. metaraminol is probably the most commonly yeah. used. It's pretty safe. It's safer for extravasate. So if you've only got a pink cannula in a hand, mm-hmm. it's probably still the safest option. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not very familiar with phenylephrine. That's very anaesthetic. Yeah, very. I would very recommend if, I mean, we use, phen- not, we use phenylephrine yeah. for spinal anesthesia, but I put a plug in, don't use it for sepsis. Sepsis, sepsis yeah. 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 It's not a great... There's no evidence for it, mm-hmm. um, but... There is, I mean, metaraminol is not heaps of evidence, but, I mean, gosh, we all use it, don't we? Yeah. Um, and it is safe to use peripherally, and it's a great starting point. ED's happy to use it. Theatres are happy to use it. Um, and then peripheral NORAD is quite centre-dependent. Um, in my hospital now, even our ED is comfortable. We've got guidelines. It just requires preferably QB fossa, so just a larger vein, so at least an 18-gauge, um, basically for safety for extravasation risk. Yeah, um, we, we do have um, this Charles Gardner guideline here, and we, we yeah. have had a few enthusiasts. Yeah. It's actually been studied a lot for spinal anaesthesia too, uh-huh. but, um, uh, that's not used in it, a hospital. Anecdotally, it probably works better. Um, so we find that metaraminol stops working after a few hours in some people, and you change them to peripheral NORAD and you're actually like, oh, they're not that shocked. Maybe it was tachyphylaxis, or, yep. um, which is nice. And it does buy you time as well because, um, you know, don't, don't 
um, let the patient get hypotensive or give them off fluid because you haven't got a central line. Mm. Like there's yeah. absolutely safe vasopressors to use. I might, I might even try and put a um, link to the to the guideline because I know RFDS use it in the peripheral yeah. the regional hospitals. It's use becoming it. quite quite well accepted. Yeah, and it's like uh, what. Uh, what's the dilution? It's um, uh, it's four milligrams, four milligrams in five hundred mils, yeah. compared to eight in a hundred mils is central strength. Yeah, so which it's is, ten which times, is ten four times and fifty. More. So it's yeah. it's really just like times ten times. 10. The, yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that makes sense. It's good. Mm. Um, I think most anaesthetists are pretty familiar with noradrenaline. Yeah, that's usually through a central line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's got the best evidence. So, like all of the studies have been. Usually, noradrenaline versus something else. Yeah. So, dopamine is bad um, in yep. one study, but we stick to that um, compared to norad. Um, Norad's better than vasopressin, but we obviously add vasopressin if the patient gets more shocked. Yep. And ha- I have a threshold in my mind at, as to when I would start that, but it's always cho- it's usually choice number two. Yep. Um, and then you need to think about inotropy if you think there's a cardiogenic component. I was going to quiz you about all those things nearer the end oh, yeah. um, we could save it for the end yeah, yeah we'll save it for well, the end we'll just um, maybe let's go back to the, let's go to a bit of um, how do you um, in ICU you know we talk about the definition of sepsis being organ dysfunction mm. how do you what's your sort of classification of organ dysfunction does this yeah. other scoring systems and things that yeah we don't, the SOFA yeah or, I mean practically we don't use that we I mean we do without really thinking about it as yeah. a SOFA score, for example. So SOFA is used predominantly as a research, like we collect the data or the research nurses do, but it's used in research. So, And then the QSOFA score has now been um, taken away from the surviving sepsis guidelines even um, in the 2021 update because it's, it's shown not to be very useful. So, I mean, what I would do if I saw a patient on the ward or in ED, the org- when I get concerned is patient looks unwell, they're tachypneic, um, uh, sometimes if they require oxygen, low urine output um, mm-hmm. worries me, confusion or drowsiness worries me a lot. So they're probably the big ones. That's classic end organ dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, rising creatinine from baseline, so mm-hmm. once you get your bloods back. Um, and then it gets more extreme if you start seeing liver function tests go off. Yep. Um, then I'm really worried and that patient needs to be in ICU and um, have their blood pressure managed and everything else. But, yeah, brain, kidneys, yeah, liver's more towards the end, like you're in trouble if your liver's starting to take a hit. Respiratory. Respi- and respiratory. Yep. And, um, and co- uh, coagulopathy. Yeah. And Coagulation, septic. yeah. Got pa- patients. But, yeah, otherwise sepsis-induced um, thrombocytopenia is quite common, mm-hmm. but it also sort of gives you an idea of how severe things are. And the respiratory dysfunction initially might just be because of the acidemia, um, but then with fluids and work of breathing and all of that, and especially in a pregnant patient with the gravid uterus and atelectasis and lower sort of reserve, um, that can escalate quite quickly. Yes. Yeah. And so, and, and it can be um, postpartum as well, can't it? Oh, yeah. In fact, yeah. it often yep. is. Actually, often, yeah. Often is, yeah. Mm. Um, when they deteriorate. So. Yeah. Here's the tricky bit. So are we, are we are we went to bugs. Talking about bugs. Yeah, this is a bit I, I'm really interested Mark, in bugs. Micro and uh, <laughs> sources of infection. Probably, that's why. Yeah. What was that? I'm really interested in this 
this discussion because yeah. um, I don't know that as much as I should. I, re- I feel like I should know more about the bugs. I mean, well, my understanding, my very limited <laughs> understanding, um, three main causes or three main bugs, which is historically yeah. used to be group A strep. Still is the leading one, I think. Okay, of, group A. Of badness. Of badness, yeah. okay. But not as common nowadays. As E. coli. Okay, E. coli, group A strep, and then group B strep. Yeah, and Klebsiella's in the mix with the UTIs as well is pretty common. Okay. Okay. Enterococcus as well is in the mix. So the sort of ESBL sort of group of... Um, mm. Okay. Should we talk about the antibiotics for each of those sort of common pathogens and then, um, yeah. and then what's a really good sort of broad spectrum of initial approach? And I guess it depends what you think the source is because mm. if it's mastitis, we're going to cover skin bugs and then your yep. staphs are in the mix too, mm-hmm. right? Strep yeah. and staph. Um, but I guess if you're worried about choreo or endometriosis yeah. so or something, the, then there's the gram negatives. The most common cause will be this u- the uterus and, and the mm. Yeah, and post-Caesar still um, is yeah. is one of the leading risk factors. So if someone's got bad choreomyelitis and then we think that's the source, what, um, what are the bugs and what are the antibiotics? I know what we do. Generally, we seem to, we seem to use um, triple therapy mm. um, and it's important to take some blood cultures before you give the antibiotics, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But don't delay the antibiotics if you can't get the cultures. Yeah. Ideally within an hour, yeah. Yeah. And what's the triple therapy that we normally <coughs> give? Amoxicillin, gentamicin. Yep. And, and metronidazole. metronidazole. Yeah. 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 That's what the Americans seem to do as well, based on a couple of yeah. recent articles. So. Yeah. It would have been good to have a um, microbiologist to um, brain to pick during this podcast. So. Yeah. Uh, Apologies, anyone, <laughs> if we make any mistakes. But, I mean, if the patient's really sick, yep. t- I mean, Tazerson just gets yep. thrown in pretty early, I think. Yes, yeah, so what did that covers all of those things? As yeah, well, it covers all it? of those yep. things, including the anaerobes, which is um, takes the place of the metronidazole, yep. and it's easy to give because it's like an, an all-in-one. If you've got difficult access, that can be a really big deal, having to give yeah. three separate IV antibiotics. So... And just going back to my comment about microbiologists, so I have been involved in, in the last few years with this woman with really severe sepsis. So as soon as you're on, um, worried about them, I put, a, put, a, put in a plug to mm. phone the on-call microbiologist. The number of times they will like, go on to the um, – you tell them the story and they'll go onto to iSoft and they'll look up the woman's history and they'll say, oh, they grew a such and such mm. uh, 18 months ago when they were up in so-and-so and whoop-whoop. You should also add in this, you know, put in some vancomycin as well because she's, she's – Previously, previously had this and that. It's that yeah. almost always gives some really good advice. Like yep. I just think, just make sure that you're giving the right antibiotics and and uh, you know, get them involved as as early as you mm. can. Even if yep. they haven't grown anything, this is all you know. Just asking for advice about what empiric drugs to give. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the only additional one is if you're worried about neck fash from wound infection or whatever. So it's not immediately postpartum. Um, add clindamycin yep. for the for the toxins and the... Okay, yep. the exotoxins that yep. they talk about. with okay. So that's... Because yep. that inhibits the ribosomes and stops them from making the toxins. Is that, yeah, is that something. Is the reason why Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Whereas so the, other, the other ones just cause them to sort of lies and die. Yeah. Yep. Static and... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, classic neck fash t- treatment is meropen and vancomycin and um, clindamycin. Okay. That, that combination of three. It'd be so pretty that, uncommon. So that might be a scenario like of um, people who have infected perineums and things mm, and get yeah. necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah. So it's not... Yeah. Um, not common. Not and common, then, but everyone worries about it. But it's so severe 
and um, has a still has a very high mortality. And same with um, toxic shock syndrome, okay. which is from your group A strep, which yeah. is still common. Yeah. Um, so if they escalate very rapidly and you've grown a group A strep, then you think about some additional things like so you might consider IVIG. So toxic shock syndrome. So how mm. would someone look different to just a bad infection? Is it was there something specific that would make they us think r- that really look sick? Is that when they get the appealing skin? Is yeah, they can. So they can get a rash. But the last few I've seen, not in obstetric patients, mind you, haven't had a rash. But you can get just a classic streppy rash, which is kind of <laughs> red and sort of maculopapular, full okay. body, but mainly trunk. Um, so the rash can be present. I don't remember how many percent of people get the rash. But they escalate really quickly. So they're not on presses, then they're on presses, then there are a lot of presses, then you're on your second agent, then you're on your third agent, and you're like, oh, my God, when's this going to slow down? Um, and then you call Bloodstar to get some IVIG. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. It escalates very, very yeah. rapidly. Okay. Um, and... More often than not, they'll have an acute kidney injury, very rapid increase in creatinine as well. Um, yeah, and rapid progression to multi-organ dysfunction. Mind you, gram-negative sepsis can present like that too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, but, but, I mean, if you've grown a group A strep, like a strep pyogenes, and you wound, you've got a wound there, then I would consider that in my differential and talk to ID early. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Should we talk about um, viral sepsis? Yeah, because yeah. you mentioned influenza and uh, mm. we have a, this a pandemic on, apparently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so all of us here have, had, have survived the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> we have. Um, yeah, I can't remember that like, uh, when we had H1N1, there was quite a few pregnant women on ventilators at Charlie's. Mm. Yep. Um, yeah. Know, what oh. are, what's your take on Viral causes of severe sepsis. Yeah, so flu is a big one. Yep. And apparently it's coming this yep. winter. Um, everyone's a bit concerned about that. But, yeah, obviously obstetric patients are more vulnerable to viral infections as well. Um, so I guess hopefully most are vaccinated. And yep. if you're suspicious, just start the oseltamivir as well because it needs to be commenced early for it to have some effect. Um and yeah, hopefully, if they if they have a flu positive, we've got this fabulous biofire panel of respiratory swabs now. I don't know if your micro team have it here too. You do one swab and it gives you everything from COVID, all the flus. I think so. Yeah, all I've of that. Some, There's like sort of ten or fifteen different respiratory panel, yeah. panels that yeah. come so up. Those are the, just it's a normal, very na- rapid. normal nasal swab. Normal like, nasal like, swab like the COVID PCR, comes yeah. back very rapidly, and you've got. PCR okay. results for all of your major pathogens. So it means that you'd have a result from whether they've got influenza or not quite quickly, which is very helpful. Um, but I guess if they get respiratory symptoms and are requiring, oh, well, where would I be worried? Probably not able to maintain SATs above 92% on four litres in a yep. pregnant patient, something like that. Certainly if you're at a Hudson mask to maintain SATs above 92, you'd want them in in a high dependency or an ICU for high yeah. flow or close watching to see if things escalate. Because yep. they're, um, as you know, mm. there would be a very scary intubation mm. yep. physiologically so it does get and bit, anatomically. Yeah, and yeah. it gets a bit tricky for us here uh, in WA or in this hospital here, you know, maybe not if you understand me, because mm. we, if they're still pregnant, then mm. you guys don't like them in your hospital. 
because <laughs> you don't have obstetricians, so it's harder yeah. to deliver them in an emergency. Mm. Um, but if they're having breathing problems, yeah. we don't really like to keep them here because yeah, we don't enough. have someone who's necessarily readily available to run down and intubate them mm. straight away. Mm. So it gets tricky, doesn't it? <coughs> I'm sure that's um, you know um, a yeah. common problem in other places too. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the COVID in pregnancy is a whole different topic. Yeah, and when we've got off pretty scot free in WA, I've got to say, um, but we've heard from colleagues over east who've had a very different experience with their obstetric population and yeah. some of their scariest um, uh, experiences in the whole COVID pandemic were the obstetric population on ECMO, etc. Yes, so and I remember tuning in in March twenty twenty to a um, sort of international obstetric. Um, sort of online MS Teams Zoom sort of meeting and all these people in France and New York were t- talking about some really scary <laughs> obstetric <laughs> scenarios in yeah. their hospitals. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Mark McGowan. Yeah. <laughs> Please take away the mask. Hi, everyone. Yeah. This is the end of uh, part one of our discussion. We're going to take a short interlude and split the discussion up into two parts. So... Um, See you back here again soon for part two. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.